0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's President and CEO, and I really am thrilled to see all of you here this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, On view right now is Audubon's Aviary, Part 1 of The Complete Flock, just open to fabulous reviews, and of course, World War II and New York City. I hope that all of you will be able to return during regular museum hours to see these fine exhibitions. And also, please do join us Friday evenings for our Pay As You Wish, Bernard and Irene Schwartz Classic Film Series, which is um, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to see great films with great speakers organized by my great colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs. Um, I hope that all of you are members at the New York Historical Society. If you're not, please join. Your membership goes to support great programs like the one this evening and all of the fine work that we do at New York Historical. So tonight's program, Those Angry Days, Roosevelt, Lindbergh, and America's Fight Over World War II, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is, of course, the heart of our public programs. As always, I would like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to the New York Historical Society. Thank you so much, Bernard and Irene. (laughs) I also want to thank the members of our Chairman's Council in uh, attendance this evening. I know there are very many of you, and of course... Members of our Board of Trustees, Glenn Louie, Ira Unschuld, Michael Weisberg, and Carl Mangus, who do so very much on behalf of our great institution. Thank you, board members. <laughs> Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask audience members to approach standing mics in these two aisles. We do that so that the speakers can hear your questions and members of the audience can hear your questions as well. Uh, Following the program, please do join uh, our speaker, Lynn Olson, for book signing. Um, Books will be available for purchase in our museum store, and she will be signing outside uh, the front entrance in our Smith Gallery. We are so very pleased to welcome Lynn Olson, who is the author of the new book, Those Angry Days. Ms. Olson spent seven years with the Associated Press, working as a national feature writer, a foreign correspondent in Moscow, and a political reporter in Washington. She later worked at the Baltimore Sun, as the Baltimore Sun White House correspondent, and she taught journalism for five years at American University in Washington. She's authored or co-authored six books, she's won the Christopher Award, and she's been shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in History. Tom Brokaw is one of our nation's most distinguished broadcast journalists, winning every major award in his craft, including Peabody's, DuPont's, Emmys, and Lifetime Achievement Recognition. In his career, he's gone from NBC News Los Angeles Bureau to White House correspondent during Watergate, to the Today Show, and of course, to anchor and becoming managing editor of NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. He's the author of six books, including The Greatest Generation, and the host of The Brokaw Files on the Military Channel, which debuts on May 30th. Before we begin, as always, I'd like to ask that you please make sure anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off, and now it is my pleasure to invite our speakers to the stage. Thank you.
1: Uh, I owe so much to Lynn in so many ways and it's one of my few opportunities to give her direction as opposed to her giving me <laughs> advice about what's going on in World War II. Thank you all very much for being here. This is a real treat, first of all, uh, to the museum and uh, New York and World War II has such resonance. And what you're about to hear from one of our preeminent military historians and especially about that time is how rich and troublesome and consequential that time really was. We think we're going through trials today. There are nothing compared to what was going on then. And the divisions that we see in Washington and across the country now, uh, as you're about to hear from Lynn, uh, pale in comparison to what was going on in 1940. So, Lynn, let's begin by setting the stage. It's 1940, Franklin Roosevelt is running for a third term as President of the United States in Europe. The Third Reich has eaten up most of France. The Brits are desperately trying to get off the beach at Dunkirk. The Low low Countries have been invaded. He's now moving on Scandinavia as well. What are the challenges for President Roosevelt here, knowing that that war is going on there?
2: Uh, His main challenge is to persuade the American people, which at that point still um, were fairly heavily isolationist. Uh, that we had to help England, that that, their, uh, that England's survival was really important for our own survival uh, and also, obviously, for Western civilization's survival. Um, I'd just like to go back a little bit to talk about this country and the whole questions that they were facing. I mean, the country had a, a, a pretty uh, long tradition of isolationism. Um, of you know, kind of a fortress America mentality. The idea that we should stay free from uh, uh, foreign entanglements that really goes back to the founding fathers. Um, and we had been in World War I. It had uh, not ended well. We were supposed to be fighting to save the world for democracy. Instead, um, democracy gave way to Adolf Hitler. Uh, we lost 50,000 men. Uh, we gave loans to our allies that were never paid back. Um, we, we felt safe in our, our little safe harbor, you know, of a country uh, between two oceans. Um, so the, there was this very, very strong feeling uh, then. Um, and that was uh, Roosevelt's challenge to kind of, you know, to figure out a way to, uh, to overcome that. Uh, and what helped to overcome that was Uh, Hitler's Blitzkrieg of Western Europe. All of a sudden, this was no longer like a movie that we were watching. You know, the war began in September 1939. Uh, This is June 1940, May May and June 1940, and all of a sudden, it looked like um, Hitler was going to conquer and did conquer most of Western Europe. England was threatened. If England fell, um, there was the fear that Hitler, the Germans, would next be on our doorstep.
1: So the master politician, Franklin Roosevelt, the great man of his time, is trying to get reelected, trying to finesse his way through that election and the whole issue of isolationism. He's getting pushed very hard by his friend, Winston Churchill, who's desperately trying to hang on to his little island nation. Who's the biggest opposition in this country for FDR, the one person who gives him the most grief?
2: Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh, the young man who kind... These were the two most famous men in America. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, when he flew uh, solo across the the Atlantic in 1927, uh, instantly became, uh, you know, next to to Franklin Roosevelt, who came along later, really the biggest celebrity in America. Um, And he became the unofficial leader of the isolationist movement. Um, he had spent several years in, in, in um, Europe uh, after his son, his, his first son, was kidnapped and killed. Um, he fled um, the U.S. with his wife and, and other son uh, to get away from the press, uh, to get away from the prying public. He was convinced that the tabloid press was responsible for the uh, uh, kidnapping of his, his uh, son because of all the publicity around, uh, around him, around Lindbergh. Uh, so he spent several years in Europe, and while there, he flew to Germany and became quite enamored with the Germans. And I, 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 has, I want to point out it wasn't really the Nazis, although, you know, you can say it was pretty close, but he, he really admired the Germans' technological expertise. He was a real technocrat. The man, Charles Lindbergh, um, was not a... Uh, a uh, sensitive person, to put it mildly. He was not, uh, um, he didn't understand people. He didn't really care about people. He cared about flying. He cared about technology. He thought the Germans were experts in technology, which they were. Uh, the, the Brits and the um, French were amateurs. Uh, he was, he was um, really impressed by the Luftwaffe. Um, Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, did his best. Uh, to impress Lindbergh so that Lindbergh would go out and say uh, the Germans were overwhelming and um, the Allies, the European allies should basically give in and uh, agree to a negotiated peace. So this is a long answer to when he came back in 1939, he was convinced the U.S. should not get involved in any kind of European war. Um, they should stay as far out of it as they could. And even though he hated Uh, being in the limelight. He really hated being a celebrity. Uh, He decided he had to get back into um, public life in order to lead um, the campaign against getting into the war or, or against interventionism.
1: There were other groups in play as well. So let's talk first of all about the isolationist group in the Congress of the United States, some of the most powerful men in the Senate and in the Congress in the memorable words of FDR, it was a Martin, Martin, and Fish that he had the most trouble with. Congressman Fish from upstate New York and Congressman Martin from Massachusetts. Martin was not in the Congress. Uh, but they had a very powerful hold as well on the idea that this is Europe's war and it's not our war.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the congressional isolationists, uh, it, were particularly strong in the Senate. Uh, Senator Burton Wheeler from Montana was really the leader of the congressional isolationist group. He was a really canny politician. He was a Democrat. Um, He was a progressive Democrat and had been uh, an ally of of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, until he broke with Roosevelt over the court packing um, uh, legislation that Roosevelt tried to get in. Through uh, Congress, uh, he thought Roosevelt was trying to get too much power uh, as president, um, and he was very, very, very good at what he did. Um, and uh, he led a, a very, very um, what's the word? A very canny um, congressional campaign against uh, Roosevelt. Uh, he was he was by far Roosevelt's main um, um, opponent in the Congress. The
1: manifestation of that would be in legislation, for example, on Lend-Lease and the Neutrality Act.
2: Yeah, um, the whole battle between the Congressional isolationists and Roosevelt started with, uh, right after uh, Poland invaded, um, I mean, uh, Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, when Roosevelt was trying to um, allow Britain and France to buy weapons um, and planes, et cetera, from us. Uh, there, were, there was a series of acts called the Neutrality Acts that had been passed in the mid-1930s that basically the purpose of it was, the purpose of all of them, was to keep us out of a foreign war. And among, among those acts uh, was one that said uh, we couldn't sell arms to any belligerent country. So Roosevelt tried to amend that so that at least France and and Britain had a fighting chance in terms of having weapons, um, ships, planes, et cetera. And that's when the battle began um, between Roosevelt and uh, congressional isolationists, and it continued through the, you know, when we talk about this, Tom, we're talking about a very short period of time. This did not go on for years, it really, this, Part of it started in September 39, and uh, Len Lease was in um, uh, January, February, March of 1941. So you're only talking about a little over a year uh, that that all this was going on. But it was incredibly intense, incredibly bitter, Um, the feuding and the fighting and the intrigue and the sabotage in Washington was was really something uh, else.
1: And I've been so struck, uh, although I was vaguely aware of it, but I've been so struck by your book about how you pull together the role of the press lords in America. Um, Some of them, the most prominent of them, were against the idea of isolationism, but there were those who said, we can't go to war as well. But describe for this audience, Rupert Murdoch would be just a member of the playground group, it turns out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's really true. I mean, I was struck in doing research for this book how, uh, as, as Tom said, you know, we talk about how incredibly uh, divisive this country is now, which it certainly is. Uh, but it, it really pales in comparison to what was going on um, during this time uh, between 1939 and 1941. And the press lords, as Tom said, played a huge role in it. And they were on both sides, and on the interventionist side, um, there was a group called the Century Group, and it was called that because most of its members were members of the Century Club, the Century Association uh, here in New York. Um, They were internationalists, um, uh, most of them came from the Eastern Establishment, uh, and many of them uh, were top um, members of the press, including Henry Luce, for example, uh, who was publisher founder, creator of Time uh, and Life, which were the two of the most important publications at the time. Uh, and uh, there's C- several CBS commentators, uh, s- several top editors and, and publishers of uh, New York newspapers, including the New York Herald Tribune, which was a huge, huge uh, voice for interventionism. Um, but Luce was particularly important because unlike uh, the other New York press lords who were really focused on New York and the East. Uh, Luce's publications were incredibly popular throughout the country and were very influential, particularly Life. Life was the most popular magazine in the United States at that time. And Luce used to say, you know, I'm not writing for New York. My magazines are not for New York. They're for the people outside of New York. And they, Time and Life had tremendous influence um, on uh, public opinion during that time. On the other side, very quickly, there, were, um, there was um, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, whose, whose newspapers were incredibly isolationist. My favorite isolationist publisher uh, was uh, McCormick, um, Robert McCormick in, uh, Colonel McCormick in Chicago, uh, who, you know, he, he, Murdoch, as you say, is a pale imitation of uh, Robert McCormick. He, he was just the most incredible character in the world. He went to school, prep school, with Franklin Roosevelt and ever since hated him and, and, and did everything he could um, to one-up him. And one time Roosevelt went to Chicago to give a speech and he was giving a speech across from the uh, Chicago Tribune warehouse. And uh, McCormick had workers go out and write in big white letters above the Chicago Tribune sign, unvanquished, (laughs) just to kind of give it in the eye to to Roosevelt.
1: And in the Midwest, William Allen White, who was the uh, legendary newspaper editor in Emporia, Kansas, had his own group.
2: There were dueling interventionist groups, too. Uh, The Century Group was kind of the radical group. The Century Group was founded in June 1940, and its express purpose, now remember this is June 1940, uh, was to get us into the war right now. It said that the U.S. should declare war immediately, the reason being uh, that they argued, the members of this group argued, that there was no way this country would mobilize industrially enough uh, to help England uh, unless we went to war ourselves. Well, that obviously wasn't gonna happen anytime soon. The more moderate group, was founded by William Allen White, uh, the legendary uh, Kansas editor, and and basically the White Committee was kind of an unofficial PR agency for the Roosevelt administration. Um, their idea was to provide all aid to Britain short of going to war, that they basically followed FDR's line that, that we were doing all this to keep the U.S. out of war. Um, so um, they mounted, the white committee mounted uh, an incredible PR campaign all over the country. I mean, um, I think they had like 750 chapters uh, throughout the US. So it got millions of people involved in, in this whole, on both sides. But um, on the interventionist side, uh, you know, you know, housewives and college students and, and other people were uh, rallying and, you know, sending letters to the editor. Uh, while, while the isolationists were doing the same thing. So it was this incredible public debate going on. And as I said, uh, a large part of the time it was really savage, um, but it was, it was really an exercise in democracy at the same time.
1: And there was a constant theme running through a lot of us on the part of the isolationists that uh, you pull together so effectively, and that is the theme of anti-Semitism. I mean, we've heard about the episodic uh, episodes of that, uh, of the of the passages, Joseph Kennedy, for example, who said we shouldn't get involved in the war, uh, had very anti-Semitic writings uh, that are recorded for history, but it went that vein went much deeper and much wider, I think, based on uh, reading your book than I realized, and I've spent a fair amount of time on the subject. Talk just about Lindbergh going to Des Moines, Iowa.
2: Okay. Um, Many, if not most of you probably know of, that, that was the infamous speech that, that Lindbergh gave in September 1941 in Des Moines, in which he said that there were three main groups trying to get the U.S. into war, and that was the Roosevelt administration, uh, the British, and American Jews. Um, and uh, he bas- what he basically said in terms of the Jews uh, were, I mean, he basically called them un-American, uh, he said that their interests were different from what the interests of America were. Um, and he was branding American Jews as the other, obviously. Um, I mean, this was, it was unmistakably uh, anti-Semitic uh, what he said. And it basically ended the kind of influence or helped end the uh, influence that America first had. Now, this is only a couple of months before we actually went to war. Um, But I write in my book that while it was awful what he said, it was not um, unusual. I mean, there was a very deep streak of anti-Semitism in this country, and the the beliefs that he expressed uh, were very similar to the beliefs expressed by by people in pretty much every walk of life from, as I say, from Wall Street to rednecks. Um, uh, The State Department, for example, was was filled with uh, mainly East Coast, um, you know, Brahmins who, uh, I mean, I read some, some of their diaries and it, it was just horrifying, some of the, uh, the comments they made. Um, the State Department was largely responsible, or people in the State Department were largely responsible for keeping, helping to keep Jewish refugees out of this country. The same thing was true in the War Department. Um, a very t- high-ranking army general Uh, said in congressional testimony that Jewish refugees should be sterilized before they were allowed to come into the country. So this kind of stuff was going on all over. And while um, I think Charles Lindbergh's problem was that he said it in a public speech. I mean, most people, you know, referred to it behind closed doors um, or certainly weren't public with it. Uh, One of the really interesting things about that is that Lindbergh had a huge fight with his wife, Anne, um, before he gave that speech. Um, Anne Lindbergh was the only one who, who he would allow to read his speeches. And she said, this is horrific. You cannot say that you, you are inducing anti-Semitism. You are s- inciting it. And she said, I know you're not an anti-Semite. She, she actually believed that. But um, uh, <laughs> because he never told Jewish jokes, you know. Uh, but she said, this is, this is wrong, this is really wrong. And he kept saying, but I'm not anti-Semitic. And so therefore, you know, you know I'm gonna give this speech because I really do believe that these people are, respond- are trying to get us into the war. It was, it was a really interesting and, and uh, um, kind of slice of America that I really didn't know much about before I started uh, doing the research and then writing it. And
1: curiously, the only member of the administration to take him on frontally, take on Lindbergh, was Harold Ickes. Uh, the president, it was a delicate matter for everybody else, because he was so popular. Yeah. He was such an enormously uh, favorable figure in the eyes of most ordinary Americans, and certainly those that they wanted to get on the side of doing something about the
2: war. Harold Dickies uh, was uh, FDR's attack dog. I mean, he was this pugnacious, combative guy who, who went after anybody he considered his uh, and FDR's enemies. And I, I, quite frankly, think he overdid it. I mean, you know, there is such a thing as freedom of speech in this country, supposedly. Um, and during wartime, and this has happened over and over and over again in wars, um, people forget about the fact that there should be freedom of speech. And, and Lindbergh, for all, you know, the stupid, wrong-headed things he said, was exercising his freedom of speech um, when he was criticizing, and I'm leaving aside his, you know, that, the uh, Des Moines speech, but when he was criticizing um, the, uh, the administration's conduct of the war, um, and Ickes and some of, some other people in the administration as well as in Congress um, basically tarred and feathered him, called him a, a Nazi, at which he wasn't, he was not a Nazi, he, he was, so totally wrong-headed as to be beyond belief, but he was not a Nazi. Um, but Ickes uh, was—he was like, um, you know, in Les Misérables. Uh, what's his name? Inspector Javert going after Jean Valjean. Uh, Harold Ickes was Lindbergh's uh, uh, inspector. The
1: uh, the British were not idle bystanders in this country. They had a very skillful operation going here, and in terms of who they sent and what their objectives were at their embassy?
2: They had, actually they had a two-pronged campaign. They they sent um, as ambassador um, to the U.S. in 1939 uh, one of the top British aristocrats. Uh, His name was Lord Lothian, Philip Lothian. Uh, He had been, uh, he had no diplomatic experience at all and he had been one of the biggest appeasers Mm -hmm. in Britain. Uh, until just before he came over. He was part of the Cliveden set, you know, Nancy Astor's um, group uh, in Great Britain. In fact, he had a platonic um, affair, a relationship with, with uh, Lady Astor. Um, so everybody who knew him or knew about him thought, oh, this is, this is horrible, this is the worst appointment that uh, uh, could possibly m- be made. And as it turned out, as Winston Churchill said, he was the greatest British ambassador ever to come to the United States. He had obviously, he had changed his mind about appeasement. Um, And he was brilliant, brilliant at uh, trying to guide American public opinion uh, the way, um, you know, that Churchill wanted um, American public opinion to go, which was basically to feel that, uh, that the U.S. needed to get into the war. And he did it not by appealing to America saying, we are so desperately in need of your help. He did it by saying, look, your security is based on our security. And he, would, he himself would go out in the country and he would send representatives out in the country to make this pitch. He loved America, uh, despite his being a, an aristocrat. He was a very down-to-earth, uh, lovely guy. Um, he, he was, I don't, we don't have time to talk about it, but he was hugely influential in getting Roosevelt to, promo, to uh, propose Lend-Lease when he did. Um, hugely influential influential. And he died, um, you know, practically the moment that uh, Roosevelt announced Lynn Lease, very suddenly. Um, He he was a great figure. He he was a great guy. Uh, And he was really important for the British at that time.
1: And then, because we know, the cliché is always true, uh, politics makes strange bedfellows. FDR got a lot of help from Wendell
2: Yeah. If there's, if there's any um, hero in my book, actually, probably two heroes, Lord Lothian, but the big hero is Wendell Wilkie. Um, Wendell Wilkie, people don't really know who Wendell Wilkie is these days. I mean, if you know him, if you know who he is, you know he, he ran unsuccessfully for president in 1940. He was FDR's opponent. Um, but he supported FDR's foreign policy. Um, throughout the campaign. He he got a little iffy during the middle of the campaign. Uh, But he supported intervention. He supported um, giving aid to the British. In fact, he was bolder in his uh, response than than Roosevelt was. Um, And what really impressed me, well, there are several things that impressed me. He supported uh, the um, first peacetime draft. Uh, that was uh, proposed and passed by Congress in the middle of the campaign. Can you believe this? In the middle of the 1940 campaign. Hugely controversial. It was the first time we had ever had a peacetime draft. Um, he supported it publicly, and he privately supported the sending of destroyers, you know, those 50 British destroyers, um, to England. Another very controversial step. Um, did this all to the detriment of his own political career, and then he loses in November of 1940, getting more votes than anybody ever had but FDR, um, but he does lose. And instead of doing a Mitt Romney-like disappearing act after <laughs> the election, um, he, he goes on the radio a couple of days later, and he said, the election's over, I lost, um, Franklin Roosevelt is your president, Franklin Roosevelt is my president, and we will support him. And he continued to do that. He was uh, very influential in the passage of Lend-Lease. He, he's, uh, FDR asked him to publicly come out uh, in support. He did. He made a number of speeches, much to the dismay and the anger of the leaders of the Republican Party, who were very against Lend-Lease. Uh, so he basically wrecked his political career doing that. Um, and Roosevelt himself said that he was a godsend, that, pro- that he didn't say probably, but that, that Wendell Willkie probably did make uh, somewhat of a difference between uh, victory and defeat in terms of Lend-Lease and a couple of other things. Um, he was a remarkable man, he, he really was, and he really does deserve to be better known than he is now.
1: So who are the other figures that left off the page for you? Uh, this is your third in a trilogy. Going back to uh, Troublesome Young Men, the people who pushed Churchill forward, Citizens of London, now this book. Who surprised you along the way that does not get enough attention? Wilkie is an example of Wilkie
2: is an example. Um. Well, there were a number. What um, it, do we know about Morgenthau, for example? You and I were talking. Oh, we were talking about Henry Morgenthau. Oh, there there are all sorts of people. Yeah, no, Henry Morgenthau, the Secretary of the Treasury. I don't really write about him uh, much in this book, um, but I find him to be one of the most fascinating members of, of, uh, of Roosevelt's cabinet uh, um, during that time. I mean, he was struggling. Tom and I were talking about, he was Jewish. He, um, it's like he was the only Jewish member of, of Roosevelt's cabinet, I think, and, and, uh, and in, a, in a city that was fairly anti-Semitic, I mean Washington, uh, he was struggling with the dilemma of being Jewish and, and wanting desperately to help Jewish refugees, for example, and, uh, and knowing how difficult that would be. And so I find his personal situation to be really... Interesting, and, and I think he, he 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 accomplished great things. He was really he was really uh, very very impressive.
1: Before we get to Pearl Harbor and um, and the German declaration of war upon us, as a historian uh, looking back on that time, you had access to a lot of material, including journals, which no one keeps anymore.
2: Lynn. Yeah, I know. I keep I, you know Tom, I and you probably do too when you when you do research. I think for example every day that i'm at the fdr library and reading these wonderful letters um, and papers and journals and diaries and when when people were letting everything revealing everything about themselves um, i couldn't whoops, sorry i couldn't do what i do uh, without that i mean you know that is uh, a writer's a, a historian's lifeblood is to have this primary material and that's why I don't think I will ever write about the present time. I mean, I, what I like writing about are people and trying to bring them to life. And the way you do that is to steep yourself in what they have written uh, or what people have written about them. And the wonderful thing, I've done a lot of, about British history around this time, and I thought I would never be able to equal, for example, Harold Nicholson's diaries. I don't know if any of you have read them. Um, an English Member of Parliament writer who, who wrote the most incredibly wonderful diaries. But in with uh, Those Angry Days, I did find the same kinds of things. I mean, to, to see Harold Ickes, I mean, he's writing about Lindbergh, and it's just, you know, the, 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 what he says scorches the page. I mean, it just brings him alive. You can really see him. Um, and the same, you know, with Anne Morrow Lindbergh and her diaries. I mean, I saw what a conflicted, troubled woman she was married to this, you know, uh, difficult guy, to put it mildly, um, and how she was caught in the middle of, uh, you know, her, the way she had been brought up and, and, you know, living with him and being married to him. So I, I could really see them. I could really picture them and, therefore, try to write them so that other people would see them as well. And, and you know, <coughs> you can't do that very much anymore.
1: Well, there are no journals anymore, but it did occur to me, as we were saying, that Rupert Murdoch would pale in comparison to Colonel McCormick that there will be a tweet before the night is over from Hubert uh, Murdoch having some observation about our comparison uh, to him. So this pitch battle goes on about whether America should get involved until Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, and there was a sea
2: change. There is a big sea change. Once, once Japan uh, bombed uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the isolationist movement basically collapsed. America first um, disbanded. Um, we haven't talked about, um, you know, America First uh, was founded by college students. Um, it was uh, students at Yale, um, and among them were uh, Potter Stewart, the, you know, future Supreme Court justice, um, Jerry Ford, future U.S. president, Sergeant Shriver, uh, future head of the Peace Corps, uh, and Kingman Brewster future president of Yale, and uh, ironically, future US ambassador to Great Britain. And all those young men who founded America First, the, the major isolationist movement aimed at keeping us out of war, all of them immediately enlisted uh, the day after Pearl Harbor. And many of them went on to, uh, and, and most of them fought, in com- were in combat, and many of them went on to distinguished military careers. Um, Charles Lindbergh, from that m- moment when he found out about Pearl Harbor, Uh, Supported the president, shut up, left the public stage, uh, never opposed anything that Roosevelt did. Uh, Roosevelt wouldn't let him into the U.S. Air Force. So his military buddies, high-ranking military buddies, spirited him off to the Pacific, where he could fly as, quote, a civilian consultant, unquote. Um, And uh, he, he flew combat missions and the squadron leaders uh, looked the other way, and he actually did. He spent a couple of months flying and once again was back in the element where he was happiest. I mean, he was happiest in a cockpit, um, you know, uh, and he, so, so he had a good, if very short, unofficial war. Um, but it, it was a sea change. It, it, and uh, what I write in my book is I think this debate as as, uh, difficult and divisive and savage and bitter as it was, and it really was, has managed to allow millions of people to have their own say, uh, pro or con. And so the pros and cons of the war, of getting into the war, were really thoroughly aired. And by the time of Pearl Harbor, the American people had gone from being largely isolationist to willing, to being willing to get into this war if it meant that the only way uh, that Hitler could be stopped was for the U.S. to go to war. And, and a, maj- a vast majority of Americans, according to the polls, now agreed with that. So it had come; there had been a huge sea change uh, in this country as a result of this great debate, which is what it was called. And so I think that helped, that long, drawn-out debate helped uh, when Pearl Harbor happened um, to unify the country in a way. Of course it was going to be unified because we had been attacked, obviously. But, but there was an understanding um, that this was going to be difficult. It was going to be a painful war, but that, that we had to get into it. And, um, and as I said, I think it really helped um, pull the country together, and, you know, beginning in nineteen forty. Um, One, and uh, and it led to the greatest generation. I mean, it, it, it really, you know, provided that unity, helped provide that unity.
1: Before we get to the questions, uh, Lynn and I were talking beforehand about the wave of books, and she's certainly uh, in the front ranks of that, that have been written about uh, World War II. Lynn has written, as I said, three wonderful books, and people have been coming up to her and talking about them, because. Her books have taken us to places that we didn't have a full appreciation of, or in many instances just didn't know about, beginning with getting Churchill forward and the Tories who helped him do that, Troublesome Young Men, then Citizens of London and the Americans who helped Governor Wyndham who became our ambassador after Joe Kennedy, Abe Harriman, and uh, Harry Hopkins, and others. And and now this book, uh, Rick Atkinson, who has just finished his trilogy on World War II, uh, has written a wonderful book called Guns at Last Light, and it's about the European theater and the last stages of the war. And so why is there such a surge of interest in World War II?
2: Um, well, I think it started somewhat with your book. Uh, no, I mean, I think it... it was
1: not the setup no, that no, I no, had no, in mind. No. I know. But it's just fine.
2: <laughs> no, I think I, that surge of interest has been going on um, because it was... It, I think there's so many reasons. I mean, because it was a great war, I mean it was it was a it was such a huge, important uh, experience for the world. Um, you know, the world could easily have gone the other way uh, if um, if Britain first Britain, and we have to keep think remembering that it was Britain standing alone for a long time, Britain and then the u s and Soviet Union. Um, came together and uh, defeated Hitler and, and Japan. It's uh, um, and there's so many elements that are so important uh, because of that war. What the the, the, the uh, direction this country took after uh, World War II. Um, it's 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 a story that keeps on giving. I mean, you know, it's uh, I think you can keep finding things to write about. Uh, um, you know, people keep have said you know. It's been done, it's been done, it's been done. But there's always something new, at least for me, um, that, that hasn't been done.
1: Thank you very much, Lynn Olson. We're going to go to questions now. We have microphones coming down to the aisle. Uh, two requests, obviously. Try to make it a question. Um, and remember, shorter is better than longer, at least in asking questions. Yes, sir, over here. Uh, <clears throat> uh, my name is Tom Wallace. Haven't read your book yet, Miss Olson. I intend to. It sounds terrific. I was born in Vienna in 1933. Came to America in 38. So the subject that you're writing about is of great interest to me, as well as everyone in this room. One observation which Mr. Brokaw mentioned in passing: We declared war on Japan. Germany declared war on us. I guess that question is, and I think I know the answer, if Germany had not declared war on us, how long do you think it would have taken us to declare war on Germany?
2: I, Go ahead. I have, I have no idea. I mean, the pressure would obviously been, have been um, to focus on Japan, because Japan was, was the country that attacked us um roosevelt was still hesitant to go to war against germany um i think we would have been drawn in eventually uh but the but it the the question is would it have been early enough to save england i mean that and and i don't know i don't know it's uh, it's one of the what ifs um i'm not sure but i don't think it would have been it, we wouldn't have done if if, if we might have let um, Britain at least um, get very close to Another being defeated. most
1: historians who have looked at it have what, said... One more question. Yeah, No, we're just going to go over here if we can. But I'm just going to say, and partial answer to that, most historians have looked at it and think that Hitler made a big mistake by yes. going as quickly against us as he did, because that unified the country even more, and then we were able to go to North That's Africa right. first and then across Europe. Yes, sir. Jim Pusinich. um Citizens of London is a Speak wonderful right up. Citizens of London is a wonderful book. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, my question deals with the relationship of FDR and um, uh, Wendell Wilkie. There was an article I'd read that towards the end of the campaign, Wilkie knew he wasn't going to win, and he and Roosevelt became sort of brothers in this campaign after the campaign, um, they planned this great liberal um, philosophy that they were going to expo- ex- expand upon after the uh, election, and that that Wilkie would in fact be the front man, and of course he kills over and dies, I think in forty three had he not do you see something like that happening and, and how would that have changed the politics of the day?
2: first of all, um, they were not brothers during the campaign. Uh, they, they fought each other desperately all the way till the end. It was just it was after the after the election was over that they came together somewhat. I get the impression that Wilkie actually didn 't like Roosevelt that much, but he, he thought it was important to get along with i mean to to work with him um, yes you're right, they did apparently talk um, very superficially and briefly about possibly forming a, a, a new party, kind of a moderate to liberal party uh, but the, that discussion and I think it was at roosevelt's uh, uh, behest, but uh, that discussion never went very far. Uh, Wilkie was a kind of a presidential ambassador during World War II. He traveled all over the world on behalf of, of Roosevelt meeting with heads of state, et cetera. So th- there was, you know, th- you're right, there was kind of a partnership. But I don't think it was ever, a, a, you know, it, th- that it was ever going to go anywhere in terms of a, a future organization did the full
0: and complete did the full and complete airing of both sides of the debate before the war help
2: lead after the war to the greatest generation did the fact that they had had this this debate and then they came together was that something that led after the war to to what the returning veterans were able to do do not you
1: I don't think so. Uh, the divisions uh, uh, rose up pretty quickly again once they got back. We had uh, Taft in Ohio who was going hard against Harry Truman. Well, think about the, uh, the 48 campaign, for example, that Truman had to go through about how deeply divided the country was along partisan lines and what was the best way of dealing with the Soviet Union, what was the best way of, of dealing with, uh, 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 and dealing with the economy as well. You go back and read. Harry Truman's speeches on the stump, it wasn't just about giving him hell. I mean, he was very, very tough. And he was very tough on this town, he was very tough on Wall Street, uh, But these people were nothing but a bunch of bankers and capitalists who, you know, want to change the country. So once the war was over, they went back to business as usual, <laughs> in a matter of speaking. Um, you know, I think the divisions were different. At the end of the day, however, when they got a new uh, session of Congress and the president was inaugurated, they did find that bottle of bourbon in the caucus rooms, <laughs> and they talked to yeah. each other, and they they were in uh, a common business, which was try to move the country forward. That's the part that's really been lost between then and now, I think. Uh,
3: <clears throat> I, I'd like your opinion on this. It's my understanding that, well, uh, the public opinion was very isolationist with respect to Germany in 19... 19- 39, 1940, it didn't feel the
2: same way with respect to Japan, and it was much more aggressive and willing to get into a war with Japan, possibly because we thought there would be pushovers and we could... Uh, I think you answered your own question. Yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, people were very... Uh, worried about the strength of the German army. They thought it would be very, very difficult to defeat Germany, but there, and, and it was somewhat racist, you know, the, the 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 little yellow Japanese, you know, we could easily uh, defeat them, and it would take only our Navy, you know, the, we wouldn't have to send any uh, troops over there, and that we could easily do it. The, the U.S., Uh, The American people knew almost nothing about Japan and and its people and its government, and we soon found to our dismay that that wasn't exactly true. Well,
1: there was something else going on as well. There were huge sections of this country that had heavy German populations, and some of them were just first-generation Germans. Uh, I discovered recently that a schoolboy friend of mine, who I always knew as Bill, his birth name was Adolf. He was born in 1940, (laughs) I mean, born in 1939. And his father named him Adolf and that spelling as well. And in big sections of the Midwest, Minnesota and Wisconsin and the Dakotas and Iowa, huge German populations. And uh, there was no discrimination against them. The Japanese piece of it was a lot racial and it was on the west coast. I just will, if I can, uh, recommend to all of you, if you get out west, you should go to a place called Heart Mountain, which is just north of Cody, Wyoming. It was one of the Japanese internment camps. And it's where the Northern California Japanese were taken right after Pearl Harbor. They were uprooted from their homes. They were sent there. It was a very harsh landscape. Uh, you know, Barbed wire fence and concertina wire. They threw out some barracks, didn't have much heating. And those people who were sent there now have children and grandchildren who are part of the fabric of American life. And they've created an amazing memorial to their time there. And it's not bitter, which is the interesting thing. I went out with them a couple of years ago. And they were very uh, winning, in some of the original internees at this camp, and talking about what they had learned there. But the American Draft Board tried to draft their sons out of that camp to send them to war. (laughs) And the sons said, many of them, I won't go as long as you leave my parents here. And were then thrown in federal prison as draft evaders, served their time, came out, went into uniform, and fought in Korea. Stop and think about that, about the difference in the sacrifice and the attachment that they have to their country. So, And and by the way, one of my very favorite moments about that is um, um, Al Simpson was a Boy Scout in Cody, Wyoming, and he went out to that camp, and he made a friend uh, who was a Boy Scout as well, just a year or two younger than he is, and it was the um, congressman from San Jose who later served as the FAA administrator uh, during 9-11. Um, I'll think of him before this day, <laughs> having my own senior moment. At any rate, there's this young Japanese American, and Al Simpson, Bonded as this camp, and Elsa had, had a big impact on his life in terms of understanding about tolerance and what we need to do. See, I'm back over here. I'm sorry.
3: Hi, I'm Glenn Louie. Um, several years ago, Philip Roth wrote a novel. Um, I can't remember the name. It could happen here but or something America. like yeah. something yeah. like that could happen in America, which was dealt with the same period yeah. and was a counterfactual about Lindbergh right. actually winning the presidency after the Des Moines speech and Jews being sent to be re-educated in rural America and so on. How far away from we was that? Just
2: that, I mean, it was a land, great or? novel. It was a great novel, but it had no basis in fact. In fact, Lindbergh made it very clear that he had no interest in politics, uh, formal politics. He was he was really the lone eagle. He was doing it on his own. He never ever. Many people, including Burton Wheeler, wanted him to run for president, and he always said, no, there is absolutely no way I am ever going to get involved in politics. Talk
1: Mm -hmm. a little more about Anne Morrow-Ollenberg and what she was going through. a very distinguished family, uh, a woman with a, kept a very detailed diary of her own, Mm -hmm. by the way, and uh, a woman of real sensitivities as well.
2: Well, she was caught in the middle of of all this. She she grew up in, in the in New York, in and around New York. She was part of the East Coast establishment. Her father was a, a former partner of J.P. Morgan. Um, he became an ambassador and then a senator. Um, and then she marries this guy who was the leader of the isolationist. Meanwhile, her sister, and she's supporting him in, in his isolation, isolationism, even though I don't think she ever really believed it. Um, but meanwhile, her mother was one of the big advocates in the William Allen White Committee um, for intervention. And her sister. Who was really her best friend was married to a Brit named Aubrey Morgan, who was one of the top British propagandists in the U.S. So while Anne was supporting Charles, um, um, Costas was supporting Aubrey, who was trying to get us into the war—the very thing that Charles Lindbergh was trying to keep us out of. So she was uh, quite frankly, you know, when you said who who really stood out why, you know, why I didn't say Ann Lindbergh, I don't know. But it, Ann Lindbergh is a really interesting character in this because she is kind of the symbol of the dilemma uh, that Americans faced in terms of this issue.
1: Uh, the congressman was Norm Minetta from San Jose.
2: <laughs>
1: I find with every passing year, the lapses are a little bit longer. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, Percy Brown... Uh, in the ranks of the isolationists, we know about the American First Committee, uh, the German American Bund, uh-huh. uh, the American Communist Party, uh, and other players. To what extent was there coordination among these various extreme to less extreme groups in the isolationist movement?
2: There was almost no coordination at all. The, um, the isolationist movement that was part of well part of their problems. They were not coordinated coordinated. Uh, and the America First organization, which was really the only influential organization, was born in, in um, really in the fall of 1940, so it, it wasn't around for a long, long time. Um, they were always trying to get Charles Lindbergh to be the head of, you know, a formal group, but he goes along with what I was saying about he had, he had, he didn't want anything to do with organizations or politics. He refused to do it. Shelly Jacobson. Um, on that same vein, did he ever have any interaction at all with Father Coughlin? Was there any exchanges, any letters, any support, any mutual support, any anything like that? I, I've never seen any Father Coughlin being the the kind of despicable um, radio priest. Uh, uh, I have seen no actual no uh, connections between Lindbergh. Didn't have many connections with other people. Uh, I mean, period. I mean, he really didn't, he, he really was on his own. He did cooperate with America first, um, but he, he was always his own man.
3: Hi, uh, Steve Bessie. I'm a fan of uh, uh, Citizens of London, for sure. Thank you. Um, it was interesting to hear you talk about Wendell Wil- Wilkie and the effect that he had on, uh, uh, on the whole process of getting us into the war and supporting FDR. And one of the characters in Citizens of London, as you well know, was Gil Winant. And prior to reading your book, I had no idea who Gil Winant was until I read what you said about him. And the thing that always puzzled me was that here was this guy who was this uh, candidate for presidency who was obviously beloved by the British people who did a fabulous job for our interests while he was there. And then he comes back and commits suicide. And I was just curious as if you knew the backstory if it because anything I've ever tried to do on my own in terms of research, I was never able to discover what happened between his all that success he had as governor and and the end of his life.
2: Um, for those of you who haven't read Citizens of London, Gil Wyinett was the American ambassador um, to England and and played a huge role and, and is an amazing character. Um, an amazing American, an amaz- amazing American absolutely. I don't have time to tell you all the things that were... I mean, he was a very tortured man him, himself. And he, he had a very tortured personal life. He was having an affair with Sarah Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill's daughter, was very much in love with her. She said at the end of the war, no, she didn't want to... First of all, he was married. He hadn't got out of his marriage yet, but she, that she didn't want to uh, continue the relationship. That really, uh, That really tortured him. He also there was nothing left for him to do. The war was over, and that was true, uh, Tom probably um, has run across this too. These people that were so involved in the war, I mean, it was a 24 hour a day, uh, incredibly pressured existence, and, and then all of a sudden it was done, and some people went on, like uh, Edward R. Murrow and, and uh, April Harriman went on to, you know, to do well, Gilligan had, had nothing left. I mean, the, the, um, the Truman administration uh, didn't offer him a job. He was really FDR's man, and he was at a loss. I mean, he he really felt that there was nothing left. I I think you know I'm psychoanalyzing him, but that there was nothing left in his life. And um, since he was already a depressive, I think that really had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Right.
3: Yes, an excellent book, and I want to thank you for a beautiful. An excellent book, and I want to thank you for your beautiful presentation tonight. My question in regards, is in regards to another hero, William Stevenson, and uh, I think you should mention his his great work for England. Uh,
2: William, very quickly, William Stevenson was the head of this incredible organization called the British Security Coordination, um, which was which was a very bland name for. Uh, a, A covert British intelligence operation operating out of Rockefeller Center during, uh, before we got into the World War II and during World War II, and its main function was to get us into the war by any means fair or foul, and most of the means were foul. Um, You know, a lot of dirty tricks, spying on congressional isolationists, uh, other American isolationists, uh, wiretapping and all that. Um, and they were extremely skillful and, and really did play a, a major, well, major role, did play a big role in, in the whole British effort, uh, along with Lord Lothian. I talked about him being the public guy for the British. William Stevenson was the incredibly skillful, covert guy for the British during this time. And he is one of the models for James Bond. Um, Ian Fleming, uh, when he wrote his novel, he worked with William Stevenson. Uh, A fascinating guy, a really fascinating guy, but he was one of the models for James Bond. Last question.
1: Uh, You mentioned that Lindbergh, after Pearl Harbor, changed his position and supported Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. What was Joseph Kennedy's position?
2: Um, You know, that's a very good question. I've never studied Joseph Kennedy after after Pearl Harbor, well, I think he... His sons all went off to yeah, war. Yeah, his and, sons all... And,
1: and he then shut down he, yeah, uh, and, I, and, I, and, and, and quieted his resistance. But his kids were deeply involved in war. Obviously, John Kennedy was, and Joe Kennedy was lost in that, what effectively was a suicidal mission, you know, flying in the airplane that was loaded uh, just with ordnance. And he had very little to say about it after, after that. It's interesting that Congressman Fish from uh, Garrison, New York, really went to his grave defending his position as an isolationist. He felt strongly that war was wrong. He'd fought in World War I, I think, yes. and yes. Uh, came from a long, distinguished military background. Uh, but he called World War II a, a, a giant deception, uh, that he, he felt that, uh, that Roosevelt had gotten an, us into it on, on wrong terms. So he, at the age of 103 or 104, whatever it was when he died, he, he took that to his grave with him. Final question, Uh, a moderator's prerogative. We presume that President Obama will read this book. (laughs) I'll make that presumption publicly. Um, What should he learn from it?
2: Um, Well, we didn't really talk about Roosevelt's leadership all that much, and and there were times when he led from behind. Um, And I think Obama should take the the message that, the people At one point, Roosevelt's private poster wrote him in capital letters, um, in a memo, what the people want is to be told what to do. And, and what he meant is that Roosevelt needed to take more of a lead in kind of guiding the people to exactly why we should get into the war. And I think that's a, a good leadership. Um. Well,
1: thank you so much. Thank you.